Okay, um, so we're going to be talking about Calvin on election this morning, and uh, I've pulled a number of what I think are important and really interesting passages from the chapters of the Institutes that deal with this. But I don't want us to lose the, the, the forest for the trees, so I'm passing out a handout that's designed to kind of show you the forest a little bit, and uh, then I've got um, some quotes up here that are the trees, so to speak, the, the only trees that we're going to focus on. If you look at the handout when you get a copy of it, there should be enough for everybody. But if you look at the handout when I, uh, when I pass it out to, or when you get it, um, we're not going to talk about everything on there. I've given that primar to you primarily just so you can see the flow of what Calvin's doing. Um, the little lines that have stars by them, those are the one, only ones that we're going to talk about. And for each one of those, I have a quote or two that we're going to look at. Um, and again, I wanted you to just see these quotes and how they all fit together and how they're part of Calvin's overall argument that he's making. Um, <clears throat> And a couple of a uh, couple of things just uh, to to begin with. First of all, we're coming to what's probably um, unjustly so the most famous part of Calvin's Institutes. Right? If you went out and told somebody on the street that we were having a Sunday school class on John Calvin, the first thing they would probably, if they know who he is at all and have any association with him, they would probably assume, oh, you guys are going to be talking about predestination, right? So this is this is the thing in Calvin that's probably most. Um, this is the thing he's most widely associated with. Um, and that's, I say he's unjustly famous for that because um, the, I, I just don't think that's fair for all kinds of reasons. For one thing, the topic of predestination is all over the place in pre-Reformation theology. There are, uh, every major pre-Reformation theologian had something to say about predestination. Augustine, to be sure, but you also find it in the Church Fathers before Augustine. You find it in medieval theologians like St. Anselm, St. Thomas Aquinas, and uh and so forth. So there's there's discussions of uh, of there's discussions of predestination everywhere prior to the Reformation. Um, not only that, but it's not as large an emphasis in Calvin as you'd expect, given his reputation on the street, so to speak. Um, and that's the first thing I have on the outline right there. I want to call attention to the length and position of Calvin's discussion. Right, the Institutes is four volumes long. Right? There's, there's four volumes. The, the Ford Lewis Battles translation comes in two, two books, but each book contains two volumes within it, right? So the Institutes is four volumes long, right? In that work, right, notice that it takes until volume three for Calvin to get there, right? He doesn't start talking about it until volume three. So he's had two volumes worth of things to talk about before he got to election. And then notice when he finally gets there, he spends what, three, four chapters on it, and then we're done. And then he moves on. And then he's got a whole other volume of things to say after this. So, you know, he's got, he, he has, his comments on this are relatively brief, given the, the size of the institutes, and they come relatively late in the institutes. So that's the first thing I wanted to just call your attention to. It's not that Calvin's discussion isn't important. It's not that he doesn't have a strong doctrine of predestination, but I think it's easy to over-associate Calvin with predestination and, uh, and, uh, and, and not do justice to the extent to which it's just a part of of, of the broader Christian tradition. Um, the other thing is uh, just a note on the content of Calvin's discussion. I think Calvin is 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 just constantly caricatured on this question. I think that people who have never read Calvin um, will uh, and whose association with him comes primarily through caricature and things like that have all kinds of uh, notions of what Calvin says about this. I can remember. 
social studies classes. I went to public high school, and I remember uh, social studies classes in which I was told that Calvin was the, the great Geneva reformer and that he talked constantly about predestination, that no one could ever, that God had uh, unchangeably foreordained who would be saved and who would be damned, that you could never know which was which for yourself, but you should do good works because that increased the likelihood that you had been predestined to life. And, uh, and that's all we need to say about Calvin. We can move on, right? I mean, I remember these kinds of caricatures, right? This is very wrong, as I hope you'll see in reading the, in, in looking at the text we've gotten, that I've got, uh, that we'll look at, that I've put up on the screen or that I will put up on the screen in just a little bit. I think that's very wrong. It's not a fair representation of him. If I were Calvin himself, I would probably say that those are blasphemous calumnies propagated by vile and profane men, right? If you read the Institutes, Calvin's always saying things like that, right? Uh, blasphemous calumnies. I'm all for reviving that phrase, right? And, uh, anyway, he would probably say that that's it's just an absolute um, mischaracterization of what he has to say that's put forward by his opponents, right? And I hope that I hope that'll come out in what we in what we see this morning. I think Calvin's discussion of this is uh, is is concise. I think it's clear. I think it's also unbelievably warm and pastoral and gentle and uh, and tender even. And I've tried to pull up passages that uh, that show that. Um, and so those are just kind of the those are the only introductory comments that I wanted to make about the length and position of his discussion and the content of the discussion. And so let's uh, let's turn to it this morning. Um, I've tried to give you, as I say, a picture of the forest, right? He, uh, the, the Institutes, chapters, volume 3, chapters 21 to 24 are devoted to Calvin on election. And I've broken that down into four basic movements. He starts by just defining what election is. He gives us a definition of election. Okay, and that takes us uh, up through roughly chapter 23. And then chapter 23, uh, number two under the outline, in chapter 23, the remainder of chapter 23, he responds to what I'm calling philosophical objections to the doctrine of election, right? Uh, typical questions that people raise against this doctrine, stumbling blocks that make, make people think this doctrine couldn't be true or that if it is true, it's, it's deeply unfair, right? And he spends uh, the, the remainder of chapter 23 uh, talking about those objections, fielding those objections. Then section three, the third movement of his discussion, uh, runs most of chapter 24, and in there he's talking about how election unfolds, how election works, how the decree of election works itself out, right? both in those who have been predestined unto life and in those who have been predestined unto death. He talks about both of those things. right? And then number four, at the very end of chapter 24, he responds to some biblical objections. There's passages that seem to create problems for what he said, and uh, he, he fields those, those objections. He looks at those passages and tries to show how they're not inconsistent with what he said at all. Right? So he defines what election is, responds to philosophical objections, talks about how it works itself out in the life of the believer, and then he responds to some bi potential biblical objections. And those are the four basic movements of uh, Calvin's discussion of, uh, of election. And so what I want to do is jump into section one. I want to look at what he says about what election is. We're going to skip number two entirely. I've given you a list of the objections that he takes up, uh, mostly because I wanted you to see what those are and to see that they're, they're the same as the kind of objections that people raise today, right? Um, and if anybody's interested in how he responds to these, then if we have time at the end, we can ask questions or you can talk to me about it afterwards. But um, I'm going to skip that section entirely. Section three, 
I want to look at how election unfolds. I think this is the section of the Institutes where Calvin gets incredibly pastoral and tries to, uh, tries to uh, you show us how election should be a comfort to our hearts. And then I'm going to skip section four entirely. Um, if you're interested in how he responds to those objections, um, you, can, you can read him on that question. Okay, so that's, uh, that's where we're headed this morning. And let's uh, go ahead and dive in. And uh, I think this first part is fascinating, the importance of staying within Scripture, right? Calvin is aware that you can uh, just get lost in all kinds of philosophical speculation when it comes to this question, and he wants none of that. He's also aware that it's possible to be so afraid of this doctrine that you're not willing to talk about it, and he thinks that's a mistake too. So he wants to go no further and no less. He wants to say no more and no less than what Scripture says on this question. I hope that's visible for everybody. But notice what he says here. Let this, therefore, first of all, be before our eyes, to seek any other knowledge of predestination than what the Word of God discloses is not less insane than if one should presuppose to walk in a pathless waste or to see in darkness. And let us not be ashamed to be ignorant of something in this matter, wherein there is a certain learned ignorance. Rather, let us willingly refrain from inquiring into a kind of knowledge, the ardent desire for which is both foolish and dangerous, nay, even deadly. Right? So we should not try to say more than what the Word of God says on this question, and we should not be ashamed to be ignorant of something if, if God has not said anything about it. When God stops speaking, so should we, right? And uh, we should leave the secret things to God, he says, right? However, uh, well, continuing on that point, for Scripture is the school of the Holy Spirit in which as nothing is omitted that is both necessary and useful to know, so nothing is taught but with what is expedient to know. Therefore, we must guard against depriving believers of anything disclosed about predestination in Scripture, lest we seem either wickedly to defraud them of the blessing of their God or to accuse and scoff at the Holy Spirit for having published what is in any way profitable to suppress. So I'm sorry, this passage or this paragraph actually is proving the opposite point, that we need to not only not go beyond Scripture, but it would be bad to say less than Scripture on this point, right? If we hold back from talking about this when God has talked about it, then we're, with, we're, we're claiming that God doesn't know what's good for us, right? That last sentence. Uh, Therefore, we have to guard against depriving believers of anything disclosed about predestination in Scripture, lest we seem wickedly to defraud them of the blessing of their God, or to accuse and scoff at the Holy Spirit for having published what it is in any way profitable to suppress, right? The Holy Spirit just wasn't very wise when it came to this, right? This is not something people should be told about, right? Um, we don't want to say that. Uh, whatever God has revealed is revealed for our benefit, right? And it would be shameful for us to withhold benefits from the people of God that God thought were necessary for the people of God. So Calvin thinks that we absolutely need to stay within the limits of Scripture, say no more and say no less when it comes to this doctrine. Right? And I think that's um, a, a critical point for us. Uh, let us, I say, permit the Christian man to open his mind and ears to every utterance of God directed to him, provided it be with such restraint that when the lo- Lord closes his holy lips, he also shall at once close the way to inquiry. The best limit for us will be not only to follow God's lead always in learning, but when he sets an end to teaching, to stop trying to be wise. Right? I love that last phrase. Right? When God uh, sets an end to teaching, we should stop trying to be wise. As a philosophy professor, I particularly like that statement, right? Um, philosophers need to shut up when Scripture um, 
and instructs them to, right? Um, um, <clears throat> Uh, last sentence on this slide, whoever then heaps odium upon the doctrine of predestination openly reproaches God as if he had unadvisedly let slip something hurtful to the church. Again, we need to not be afraid to speak of this insofar as God has spoken of it, right? Which people make that mistake today too. I don't want to talk about this, right? But we also need to be very careful not to say more than God has said and to let the mysteries uh, remain where God has left them, right? Okay. So those are his uh, preliminary remarks. They come at the very beginning, and you can see how, uh, how concerned he is about this. Okay? And then uh, jumping down underneath what election is, that was the first remark that he makes. And then he gives us a definition of what predestination is. And Calvin actually spent some time talking about how there's different kinds of election in Scripture. He talks about the ele- that, that don't have to do with salvation. He talks about the election of the nation of Israel from, uh, from all the nations of the earth and so forth, to be his special covenant people, and so forth. And he says that's a little different than the kind of election I have in view in this section. And he goes on and he he finally talks about exactly what kind of election it is that he has in mind and he's discussing in this section. And here is a very clear, I think, definition of what we mean by election. He says, as Scripture then clearly shows, we say that God, once established by his eternal and unchangeable plan, those whom he long before determined once for all to receive into salvation, and those who, on the other hand, he would devote to destruction. We assert that with respect to the elect, this plan was founded upon his freely given mercy without regard to human worth, but by his just and uh, irreprehensible but incomprehensible judgment, he's barred the door of life to those whom he's given over to damnation. And that paragraph, in a sense, is the thesis statement of Calvin's entire discussion of election in the Institutes, right? In a sense, everything that comes after is just unpacking uh, this paragraph, right? Uh, next slide, he goes on just a little bit, and, and uh, this, this gets unfolded or unpacked as, the, as his discussion progresses as well. He says, now among the elect, we regard, we regard the call as a testimony of election. Then we hold justification, another sign of its manifestation, until they come into the glory in which the fulfillment of that election lies. But as the Lord seals his elect by call and justification, so by shutting off the reprobate from knowledge of his name or from the sanctification of his spirit, he, as it were, reveals by these marks what sort of judgment awaits them. So what we have here is a a very nice and concise definition of of predestination. God is established by his eternal and unchangeable plan, those whom he's determined to receive into salvation and those whom he would devote to destruction. It's based on mercy, freely given mercy, without regard to human worth. And in the elect, this works itself out in calling, justification, and ultimately in being brought home to glory. And in the same way in the, in the reprobate, those who have been passed over, right, it shows itself in that they are closed off from those things. And so that's his basic definition of, of, uh, of predestination. And immediately after that, he <clears throat> makes two... He spends a great deal of time making two critical clarifications. There's two things that he's extremely concerned to clarify about this. First is the basis of predestination. You saw up here that he, uh, 
he says on this slide, he says that uh, it's, it's made without regard to human worth. It's based upon his freely given mercy, right? Immediately after he's defined what predestination is, he returns to that point and emphasizes it, that predestination is based on free grace. It's based on sovereign mercy. It's not premised in any way on human merit, right? Um, and he, he acknowledges that a lot of people get this wrong, okay? He says many persons think that God distinguishes among men as co- according as he foresees what the merits of each will be. Right? This is a position that's still around today. Right? There's a lot of people who think that the, the basic way election works is God looks down the corridor of history, sees who will respond to the gospel and who won't, and then uh, elects those whose disposition is such that they will respond to the gospel to life and elects those whose disposition is such that they'll reject the gospel to death. And Calvin thinks that uh, the, the, this position was common in his own day. Right? God distinguishes among men according as he foresees what the merits of each will be. Therefore, he adopts his sons, those whom he foreknows will not be unworthy of his grace, and he appoints to the damnation of death those whose dispositions he discerns will be inclined to evil intention and ungodliness. And this commonly accepted notion is not confined to the common folk. Important authors of all periods have held it. Right? So this position was around in Calvin's day. It's around uh, today. It's been a, it was around throughout church history up to the time of Calvin. Nevertheless, he thinks this is deeply mistaken. He has a long discussion of this where he tries to uh, thoroughly refute it. I'm just going to give you one passage from that discussion, but he quotes Ephesians 1.4. Right? What's Ephesians 1.4? Does somebody have, uh, have the passage? I, I do not have a slide with that on it, but just so everybody has that in their, in their minds. What's Ephesians 1.4? I hear pages rustling. Okay, just as he chose us before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And Calvin puts a lot of uh, emphasis on that. He says, if we say, since he foresaw that we would be holy, he chose us, he thinks you invert Paul's order in this verse. If he chose us that we should be holy, he did not choose us because he foresaw that we would be so. If he chose us for the purpose of making us holy, then he didn't foresee, he didn't uh, uh, choose us because he foresaw that we would be so. These two notions disagree, that the godly have their holiness from election and that they arrive at election by reason of works. When it said that believers were chosen that they might be holy, at the same time it suggested that the holiness that was to be in them originated from election. What consistency is there in saying that the things derived from election gave cause to election, right? If God chose us so that we could be made holy, right, then, the, then holiness could not have been the basis of his choice. Right? His choice, he was looking to see who he would make holy. Right? If he's looking to see who he's going to make holy, then there's no holiness there in the first place for him to premise his choice on, is what Calvin is saying. So he thinks that any kind of holiness or merit in the object of predestination cannot be the basis of predestination. He thinks that that's thoroughly wrong, and he spends a great deal of time um, uh, talking about that. As Calvin sees it, the basis of election lies in God alone. There's nothing in the creature that would, that would serve to distinguish you as an object of election over and against somebody else. Right? That's Calvin's basic position, and he believes that that's the teaching of Scripture, as, as do we. Okay? Um, <clears throat> and then I want to skip forward a good bit. Okay? Um, 
Section 1 uh, ends with his discussion of uh, how election and reprobation go together. And just really quickly, I'll tell you that Calvin thinks that it's, you, you cannot have predestination to life without predestination to death, right? If, if God has chosen some in the act of passing over others, he has decreed that they would be given over to, to, uh, to, uh, to eternal death, right? If there's election to life, the counterpart to that is that there's an election to death. They don't necessarily work out in exactly the same way, but nevertheless, the decree of predestination, he thinks, it exists alongside a decree of damnation, right? There are those who are elected to life, appointed to eternal life. There are those who are appointed to eternal death. And he makes that point as he ends his discussion of what election is. And that gives rise to a series of philosophical objections or problems that he, he anticipates, uh, I counted five distinct um, objections that, uh, that people might raise against this. Again, I'll let you read through that list. They're all there. But what I want to concentrate on is uh, this next section, uh, section uh, chapter 24, section 1 to chapter 24, four, section 14. And this is the section I really want to focus our time on. He talks here, he spends the majority of this time talking about how election works itself out in the lives of those who've been elected unto life, right? And he also talks in here about how we can be sure of our election. And if we're anxious about our election, he talks about how we should deal with that anxiety and what the appropriate way to try to handle that anxiety is. And again, I think these are such tender moments in Calvin, and I want to really call your attention to those since they're not the kind that you hear in the standard caricatures of Calvin, right? But uh, first of all, uh, let's look at this. He says, first of all, all those who are elect are in the fullness of time, right, at a time of God's own choosing, but in the fullness of time, they are called. Right? Although in choosing his own, the Lord already has adopted them as his children, we see that they do not come into possession of so great a good except when they are called. Right? Even though we're elect, uh, we come into full possession of the things that God has in store for us when we are called. Therefore, God designates as his children those whom he has chosen and appoints himself their father. Further, by calling, he receives them into his family and unites them to him so that they may together be one. So he, uh, he chooses us to be his children. He designates as his children those whom he's chosen. And then in due time, he calls us and receives us into his family and unites us to himself and to one another, right? And that's true for all the elect. All the elect are ultimately called. And then he talks a little bit about what the nature of this call is. He says, the very nature of the call consists not only in the preaching of the word, but also in the illumination of the spirit. So all those who are elect eventually hear the preaching of the word, and then not only do they hear the preaching of the word, but they receive the Spirit's illumination. The Spirit changes their eye, their heart, opens their eyes, opens their ears, right? And Calvin calls that the illumination of the Spirit, or a couple lines later, this inner call. And he says, this inner call is a pledge of salvation that cannot deceive us. All the elect are renewed, they're regenerated, they're made new, their hearts of stone are taken away, and they're given a heart of flesh, so that when the word is preached, they respond to it, not with hardness of heart and resistance, but with uh, saving faith and repentance. 
Okay? And that inner call, that inner renewal, is a pledge of salvation that cannot deceive us. Right? God changes the heart of those who are elect so that that inner call is a sure sign of our election. And he says, unless the flesh boasts, or he goes on to emphasize that this inner call is entirely God's work. He says, lest the flesh boast that it did at least answer him when he called and freely offered himself. He declares that it has no ears to hear, no eyes to see, unless he makes them. And he makes them not according to each person's gratefulness, but according to his election. You have a notable, notable, a notable. You have a notable example of this where Jews and Gentiles together hear the preaching of Paul. When all have been instructed by the same word, it's stated that those who have been ordained to eternal life believed. Right, that's in Acts 13, verse 48, when Paul is preaching in Athens. And at the close of the description of uh, Paul's preaching, it says that as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And Calvin looks at that as an example of what he's talking about here. Right, The, the word goes out, right, and those who had been appointed to eternal life, those who had been elect, receive an inward transformation of heart that opens their heart to the word preached, and they respond in faith. Right, Those who have been ordained to eternal life in the fullness of time they believe. And that kind of calling works itself out in the lives of all the elect at some point or another. Doesn't mean that they can't go through a period of time where they're hard. right? Doesn't mean that there might not be a phase of life where there is stubborn unbelief. But in the fullness of time, all the elect eventually receive this kind of inner transformation and response to the word. And then Calvin, having said all of that, Having laid all of this out, he starts talking to us very pastorally. And he said, okay, if you're worried about election, if election causes you anxiety, how do we deal with that? How do we deal with that? I love this passage right here. Satan has no more grievous or dangerous temptation to dishearten believers than when he unsettles them with doubt about their election while at the same time he arouses them with a wicked desire to seek it outside the way. I call it seeking outside the way when mere man attempts to break into the inner recesses of divine wisdom and tries to penetrate even to highest eternity in order to find out what decision has been made concerning himself at God's judgment seat. So Calvin says one of, Satan's desi- one of the ways that Satan uses this doctrine to try to cause problems for believers is he makes us doubt our election. Am I really elect? Right? What was God's? I mean, God has already made a determination about me in, in eternity past. What was that determination? How do I know? Right? What if it? How do I know? Did God choose me or didn't God choose me? How do How do I answer that question? Right? Raising doubts about that is the first step that Satan might use to unsettle believers in using this doctrine. And then the other thing he might do is, is stoke in us a desire to answer that question in the wrong way. And what's the wrong way according to this passage? What does Calvin think the absolute wrong way to deal with those doubts is? Apart from our union with Christ. Let's, let's leave Christ and the gospel and all those kinds of things out and let's try speculatively to climb up into eternity past and figure out in our mind what, 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 God, would have, what God did with us, right? When we try to yeah, peer into the high, penetrate even to the highest eternity in order to find out what decision has been made concerning God himself at God's judgment seat, right? 
So when we speculate and wonder about this in abstraction, when we're filled with doubts and then we speculate and wonder about this in abstraction, Calvin thinks that's dangerous, right? He says, then we cast ourselves into the depths of a bottomless whirlpool to be swallowed up. Then we tangle ourselves in innumerable and inextricable snares. Then we bury ourselves in an abyss of sightless darkness. For it's right for the stupidity of human understanding to be thus punished with dreadful ruin when man tries by his own strength to rise to the height of of divine wisdom. And this temptation is all the deadlier since almost all of us are more inclined to it than any other. I think the writers of the social studies textbooks I was referring to earlier probably only read this passage and then moved on, right? Because this seems to be what they think Calvin's position on election is, that we're just supposed to uh, sit there and cower and wonder and be caught in anxiety the rest of our lives and just, you know, kind of hope and do good works in order to, in order to increase the likelihood that we're, that we're chosen, but who knows at the end of the day. But Calvin here is looking at this as a, as a horrible frame of mind for believers to be in and exactly the wrong state of mind for believers to be in. He's deeply pastorally eager that we not be this way. He thinks that it would be, uh, that this is debilitating to our spiritual life, right? And that this is not what God would have for us, right? This is not how we should go about dealing with the question of our election. Right? Um, oh, did I just, uh, I did that the wrong way. All right, so, <clears throat> uh, but he acknowledges that we're tempted by this. Rare indeed is the mind that is not repeatedly struck with this thought. Where comes your salvation but from God's election? And what revelation do you have of your election? This thought, if it's impressed upon itself upon you, either this thought, if it's impressed itself upon him, either continually strikes him in his misery with harsh torments or utterly overwhelms him. Calvin's aware of the pastoral difficulties that can be caused by by this mindset. The mind could not be infected with a more pestilential error than that which overwhelms and unsettles the conscience from its peace and tranquility toward God, right? I love that line. Calvin's almost angry on behalf of any form of anything that cuts us off from our ability to rest in, 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 in the peace and tranquility God has for us, right? He's almost like a, a, a zealous parent who will not have their children worried about, about their love for them, right? Um, Calvin wants our souls to be in a state of, of calm and peace, right, about our state with God. And he recognizes that, that uh, there are ways election can be mishandled that rob us of that peace, And so he says, consequently, if we fear shipwreck, we must carefully avoid this rock against which no one has ever dashed without destruction. So, uh, even though discussion about predestination is likened to a dangerous sea, right, even though we can go wrong, still, in traversing it, one finds safe and calm, I also add pleasant sailing, unless he willfully desires to endanger himself. Just as those who engulf themselves in a deadly abyss, who to make their election more certain, investigate God's eternal plan apart from his word, so those who rightly and duly examined it as it is contained in his word, reap the inestimable fruit of comfort. Let this therefore be our way of inquiry, to begin with God's call and to end with it. So notice what he says at the end of this discussion here. Predestination can, if handled the wrong way, lead to all kinds of anxiety, but if handled the right way, it's a source of safety and calm and even pleasant, and it's even pleasant for us. It's a source of deep, deep comfort for the believer if it's handled and approached the right way. And uh, so what he's going to go on and do is talk to us about the right way to make sure of our election 
And just from this paragraph, we've already seen where should we go for assurance of our election? Where does he think that our, the, the assurance of our election should come from? Those who rightly and duly examine it as it's contained in his word, right? Um, if we seek to investigate God's eternal plan apart from his word, right, we get into problems. But he thinks that our assurance of election should come from God's word and at the end of the paragraph from God's call. And he's going to uh, go on and talk about that for a moment. The right way to be sure of our election, right? The right way to deal with doubts about our election. So let's talk about that for just a second. Okay? The right way to uh, talk about or to look for reassurance. Okay. So first, if we seek God's fatherly mercy and kindly heart, we should turn our eyes to Christ, on whom alone God's Spirit rests. If we seek salvation, life, and the immortality of the heavenly kingdom, then there's no other to whom we may flee, seeing that he alone is the fountain of life, the anchor of salvation, and the heir of the kingdom of heaven. Now, what is the purpose of election but that we, adopted as sons by our heavenly Father, may obtain salvation and immortality by his favor? No matter how much you toss it about and mull it over, you discover that its final bounds still extend no farther. Accordingly, those whom God has adopted as his sons are said to have been chosen not in themselves, but in his Christ. For unless he could love them in him, he could not honor them with the inheritance of his kingdom if they had not previously become partakers of him. But if we have been chosen in him, we shall not find, our assurance, of, we shall not find assurance of our election in ourselves and not even in God the Father if we conceive him as severed from his son. Right? That final line, if we've been chosen in him, we will not find assurance of our election in ourselves, and not even in God the Father if we conceive him as severed from his son. Right? Where do we look to be sure of our election? We look to his son. We look to Christ. Right? And uh, this might have to be where I stop, but this is a, uh, I might go one slide more, but this is really the heart of Calvin on election, right? Where do we go to make sure of our election? We go to Christ. Christ, Calvin says, is the mirror wherein we must and without self-deception may contemplate our own election. For since it is into his body that the Father has destined those to be engrafted whom he's willed from eternity to be, to be his own, that he may hold his sons all whom he acknowledges to be among his members, we have a sufficiently clear and firm testimony that we have been inscribed in the book of life if we are in communion with Christ. Right? Everyone who's elect is elect unto union with Christ. They're elect in Christ. Right? They're elect unto union with Christ, where in due time all those who are elect are called into union with Christ. So if you want to know whether you're elect, look to see whether you're in Christ. Right? How, does he, how do we know whether we're in Christ? How do we know whether we're in Christ? Um, <clears throat> let me go here, and uh, we'll stop with this this morning. But this is Calvin's ultimate answer. He says, Since Christ is the eternal wisdom of the Father, his unchangeable truth, his firm counsel, we ought not to be afraid of what he tells us in his word, varying in the slightest from that will of the Father which we seek. Rather, he faithfully reveals to us that will as it was from the beginning and ever shall be. 
The practice of this doctrine ought also to flourish in our prayers. For even though faith and election prompts us to call upon God, still when we frame our prayers, it would be preposterous to thrust this upon God or to bargain upon this condition. O Lord, if I've been chosen, hear me. For it's his will that we be content with his promises and not inquire elsewhere whether he will be disposed to hear us. That last line, it's his will that we be content with his promises and not inquire elsewhere whether he be disposed to to hear us, right? How do we know whether we're in Christ? Calvin's going to say we look to the Word, and what does the Word say? Right? The Word says, <clears throat> hold on, if I can find the, uh, 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 right here, let me go, let me end with this. What would we have? Christ proclaims aloud that he has taken under his protection all the Father wishes to be saved. All those who are elect come under the protection of Christ. Therefore, if we desire whether to know whether God cares for our salvation, if we desire to know whether we're elect, let us inquire whether he has entrusted us to Christ, who he has established as the sole Savior of all his people. Well, how do I know that? He says, if we still doubt whether we have been received by Christ into his care and protection, he meets that doubt when he willingly offers himself as shepherd and declares that we shall be numbered among his flock if we hear his voice. Let us therefore embrace Christ who is graciously offered to us and comes to meet us. He will reckon us in his flock and enclose us within his fold. So in other words, how do you know if you're elect? You come under Christ's care and protection. How do you know whether you've come under Christ's care and protection? He tells us who he takes under his care and protection. Who does he take under his care and protection? All who come to him in faith. So if we want to know whether we're elect, what do we do? We come to Christ, and he's promised us that he, will, he is graciously offered to us and will come to meet us. He reckons us in his flock and encloses us within his fold. Right? Now, Calvin on election, you know, Calvin does not want us lying back in our beds at night wondering, am I elect or am I not elect? How do I know the answer to that question? If I'm not elect, then God's not going to receive me, and there's nothing I can do about it, and so on and so forth. Calvin wants all those fears put aside. Right? And what does he want us to look to? wants us to look to his son, right? And his son has graciously promised to receive unto himself all who come to him, right? And all who are elect show their election by coming to Christ, right? So what would Calvin have us do with anxieties and fears about whether we're elect? He would have us go to Christ, right? He would have us look to Christ. Christ is the mirror in which we contemplate our election. And I love the closing lines of this slide, right? Let us embrace Christ who comes to meet us, he will reckon us in his flock and enclose us within his fold. I think a beautifully pastoral passage about about election and the heart of God towards us in election and so forth. Um, I'd commend to you the reading of the rest of what Calvin has to say on the subject. It's, uh, he, he provides, I think, excellent um, responses to the various objections that people raise, and he's warm and pastoral in this way throughout much of that discussion, and so I'd commend it to you, but I better stop there for this morning, because right. um, it is 1040. Yeah. We've got five minutes? All right. Um, let me stop there anyway. Are there questions or comments? Yeah, James. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Um, let me scroll back here to, um, hang on for a second. I love, I love no, absolutely, I think yeah, it's yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I think you see that in him. I don't know that I have uh, that I have passages that will terribly directly speak to that question abstracted here. But Calvin is going to say that um, if you look at this, among the elect we hold the call as a testimony of election. Then we hold justification, another sign of its manifestation, until they come into the glory which, in which the fulfillment of that election lies. Right? So the, we're called into union with Christ, and he thinks that that call carries all the, the, the manifestation of our election and God's calling us to himself you know, certainly begins with our response to the gospel, but then carries through all the way to glory. Right? So as we see progress in sanctification, as we see progress in holiness and so forth, absolutely that can be a sign of, uh, of, of the fact that, that God has begun a good work in us and will carry that through to, uh, to fulfillment and to completion and so forth. And elsewhere, he'll talk, about, um, he'll talk about the fact that there can be true and false professions of faith that look like each other, right, and that they are very different than each other. And so forth. So I think he certainly acknowledges that. But I think by the same token, what he wants to be careful of, right, is he wants to be careful of somebody saying, well, I don't see... I, I know my own struggles with sin. I must not be elect. Right? I think he wants to be terribly careful of that. Right? And I think that what he would have the person in that circumstance do, he wants to be careful of the trap of, not, of struggling with our own lack of holiness, struggling with our own sin, becoming persuaded that we must not be elect, and then being cut off from the comfort that the gospel has to offer to us in those circumstances. And so I think what he would say is that the, the first plank of our assurance, right, the first place we go for assurance is to the promises of God as those who are disposed to us in Christ. Right? Uh, is God favorably disposed to us? Yes, all who come to Christ Right? He's willing to receive, right, under Christ's care, right? All who come to Christ, he'll receive on the, and, and that promise is sure, right? That is the heart of God toward those who are, who are repentant, right? And it's not that there's no place for looking to, uh, to works as a, as a source of justif- uh, not justification for crying out loud. Strike that from the record, right? But, um, uh, there is a place, uh, in looking for, for assurance, yeah. I think there is a place for looking for, for works as assurance, but he wants to be careful of not uh, not falling into the, the same sort of traps that he's outlining at the beginning. Yeah. Okay. Other questions? Yeah. Yeah. If you look at uh, if you look at the outline, he does talk about that in the, when he talks about the relationship to reprobation. It depends a lot on what you mean by double predestination. Um, it's a huge discussion at one level. Let me let me put it this way. Uh, this won't be satisfying, but let me put it this way in a nutshell. He certainly he openly rejects those who claim that election can somehow exist on its own and there can't be a, a corresponding decree of reprobation. He says that explicitly, right? So he says that election and reprobation are that, that there are decrees of both sorts within God, right? Now he doesn't think that those decree that those decrees kind of work themselves out historically the same way. He very much. Uh, believes that there's a that there's a uh, that that those who are reprobate are given over to a reprobation that's native in them, right? It's not that their reprobation is uh, is it's not that their their inward hardness of heart is brought about by a direct work of the spirit in the way say that the that faith in the heart of the elect is brought about. So he'll speak of a giving over, right? And he'll parse or he'll unpack reprobation in that way. 
right? But he's going to talk about reprobation and uh, election as, uh, as both decrees of God that are made from eternity. And he thinks that he explicitly rejects the position that you can break one off from another, another right? And he will talk about, the, about how the word can be an occasion for hardening, right? And even a deliberate occasion from, for hardening, right? So, so you do find those things. But again, I think it depends a lot on what double predestination, what, what the person asking that question means. Uh, I should probably let this be the last question. Yeah. I suspect that most actions from not proper understanding of the law, even yeah. the fact that there was a total depravity, that there was all manner of what they call an animal. Yeah, yeah, the language that's used in the Reformed Confessions is that God passes over or leaves or gives over, right? Those who, who are, are reprobate, right? He, and, uh, and that language finds an antecedent in Calvin, right? He'll, he'll, he'll talk about that repeatedly, um, that, uh, as God, that uh, those who were not elect unto life, right? Those who have been reprobated, those who have been decreed to, those who have been um, elected unto eternal death, if I could put it that way, right? Um, are given over, right? They're left in their own hardness of heart, and ultimately they, they receive the just deserts of their own um, of their own condition, right? God's not dealing with them unjustly, right? He's dealing with them as their own uh, uh, as their own hearts deserve at that point. I should stop there. Yeah. Okay. Um, why don't we uh, close in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you for the time that we could spend together. Thank, we do thank you for the grace that you've shown to us in, in election. We thank you that, uh, that before we knew you, you knew us. That before we had loved you, you had loved us. That indeed from eternity past, you had fixed your love upon us. And we thank you uh, for uh, your heart that we see in this doctrine. We thank you for your heart uh, that we also see in the passages we've read this morning to receive sinners unto yourself. We thank you that... Uh, that in the fullness of time, those who you've fixed your love upon, that you change their hearts and call them to yourself, that they might enjoy union and communion with you. Please prepare our hearts to celebrate um, that union uh, once more this morning as we come together and worship. In Christ's name, amen. All right, thank you, you guys.